my mouth and meditation all of our hearts. That's both your sight, the Lord, our God. We need to talk. If you're anything like me, hearing these words might kill you with anxiety, dread, and a host of other complicated emotions. As blood rushes to your face and your heart begins to pound, your mind begins to race. You try to anticipate what might this be about? Why this person, perhaps a friend, an acquaintance, a family member, or a lover, needs to talk? What have you done wrong? Your mind keeps on spinning. And maybe, if you can guess correctly, you've bought yourself two or three seconds, enough time to think of the right words to say, and maybe, just maybe, soften the blow a bit. Lent is the time in the church's calendar where we focus on the times God says to us, we need And in today's gospel, we find Jesus at his most abrasive, speaking uncomfortable words to his hearers then and his hearers now. He pulls no punches as he tells us we need to talk. His exact words are even harsher. He says, unless you repent, you will all perish. He says it twice. And the context in which he says this seems unfair, insensitive, altogether unkind. After all, these people have just come to him to discuss an awful tragedy, a blatant injustice. A group of Jewish worshipers gathered in the temple, and Pilate, the Roman governor, murdered them as they tried to worship what was supposed to be a holy sacrosanct space. The narrator doesn't give us much background on this exchange between the people and Jesus. So we don't know exactly why they bring this story to them, or what circumstances or with what motives. Even so, in any case, this would be a startling response. It seems positively cold-hearted. Imagine for a moment a similar scene today. A group of people comes to Jesus, outraged at one of the many gross injustices we hear about on a weekly basis. Did you hear about the people massacred in New Zealand last week? Jesus responds, unless you repent, you will perish like they did. I imagine this audience came to him expecting reassurance. I certainly would. That's exactly what I would want for he here today. To hear him say, with all of God's authority behind him, this wickedness is not going unseen. And in time, I will gather all people of goodwill like yourselves, and we will topple Pilate's regime and build a new society, the kingdom of God on earth. Or in today's terms, I would want to hear Jesus condemn the forces of nationalism and racism and gun violence to denounce all those who attach his name to their evil causes, to assure us that God really hears the cries of the victims, to tell us that God is angry. God is doing something about it. But Jesus says nothing of the sort. In fact, his response is even worse. He brings up another unrelated catastrophe. This time, a horrible accident. A stone tower had fallen at Siloam, killing 18 people. And again, Jesus says, Do you think these people were any worse than you? If you don't repent, it will be even worse. 
again, today's term, this might be like Jesus responding to the news in New Zealand by saying, what about those hundreds of people killed in Mozambique by the cyclone? You don't repent, you'll perish just like me. Anyone said something like this today, you would quickly condemn them as insensitive, out of touch, entirely inappropriate. This is Jesus we're talking about. As Christians, we can't casually condemn his words, let alone just dismiss them. We've got to wrestle with them somehow, to open ourselves up whenever he says to us, we need to talk. It is not the time to be avoidant, as we're so often tempted to be when facing hard conversations, but to drop our defenses, to listen honestly and open mindedly. So, what is Jesus trying to tell us here in this strange, provocative way? One common way of understanding this hard passage that comes to my mind is something you've probably all heard before. It's the understanding of Jesus and his gospel that I was raised to believe. On this understanding, each one of us is, to borrow the title of the famous book, a dead man walking. Each of us lives under the constant threat of an eternal death sentence. Here, on this understanding, unless we repent, and here repent means admit that you are a sinner who is guilty under God's law, and then ask God to release you from this sentence. Unless we repent, we will spend an eternity of punishment in hell for everything we've done. On this understanding of the gospel, what Jesus said is quite simple. To be murdered by a tyrant like Pilate, or to have a stone tower fall on you, is pretty bad. Whatever suffering you face in this life is pretty awful. But none of that comes even close to the eternity of unspeakable torment that is in your future when you do not repent. But I think this is the wrong way to understand Jesus' gospel. And it shouldn't be surprising, I think it's the wrong way to interpret this story. After all, hasn't Jesus just suggested that God doesn't send bad things to people because of their sin? Hasn't he just suggested that these people were no different from anyone else in Galilee? Hasn't he just rejected the pious, victim-shaming notion that suffering in this life is divine punishment for falling short, for missing God's mark? To this kind of picture of God, Jesus said a resounding no. God is not like that. And then he tells a parable to describe God in a very different light. It just takes a little thinking to figure out what this parable means. Bible is full of parables, and Jesus is especially fond of them. Some, like the sower and the seed, are relatively long. Others are just a mysterious one-liner. Some come to interpretation, and others are left for us, the listeners, to work out. But they all have something in common. It's what makes them heroes. Each one is a story that describes the world in a new way, a strange new way, that briefly makes our own world feel unfamiliar in some way, until suddenly we see truth 
about the structure of reality that we simply overlook until we heard this story. This parable is about a fig tree and two people. One of these is a gardener who works in the vineyard, tending to the vines and the trees, working hard to make them thrive. He knows the trees, what kind of soil or sun they need to thrive, how to encourage healthy growth, what it looks like for a tree to fail and even die. The other person is a landowner who owns the vineyard. And one day, he comes looking for fruit and doesn't find it. He is fed up. In fact, he's been looking for fruit on this tree for three years and still hasn't found a single piece of fruit. So he tells the gardener, cut down this big tree, I'm done. Why should it be wasting my soil? His logic seems sound. As a gardener with limited space to grow my own garden, this is the time of year where I have to make hard decisions about where and what to plant. I understand his concern about maximizing good soil and sun. If I had a fig tree in the prime of its fruit-bearing years, but it hadn't given me a single fig in three years, I'd be inclined to chop it down. Use it for firewood and put a new tree in its place. One that would bear fruit. Looking. But here, this gardener stepped in. And perhaps he's speaking out of turn to this landowner. But he says, no, leave it alone for another year while I add compost and tend to it. And then you can go back next year and we'll revisit this discussion. How does this story help us understand Jesus' harsh call to repentance? Some people interpret the landowner to be God. The trees and the vines and the land are each of us, creatures God has put on the earth to produce all the beautiful fruits of human civilization. Astounding feats of science and technology, stirring works of music, poetry, and painting, acts of courage and life-giving love, and above all the ordinary, everyday things like a parent raising a child or people building a robust, loving community. These are the kinds of fruits that God wants to see on our trees. But more often than not, we have been the unfruitful creatures. We have not been using our time and resources to produce the fruits God is looking for. However, we've gotten allies in our time, the gardener. And as you might have guessed on this interpretation of the parable, the gardener is Jesus. While God is ready to condemn us and toss us into the flames like old, no good pigwood, Jesus stepped in to intercede to save us from God's wrathful judgment. This, again, is a popular picture of God. There are grave problems with the theology behind this vision. I won't say much about it now, except one important point. If the gospel is true, then the intentions of God and Jesus are the same. Jesus is not a kind defense attorney who pleads our case before God, a cold-hearted judge. No, the God we worship is like the gardener. The one who tends lovingly to us, 
providing us with soil, sunshine, water, which will encourage our growth into healthy, fruit-bearing creatures, whose true happiness simply consists in being the creatures God planted us to be. And the landowner in this story? Well, he seems to represent anyone who looks at one of God's good creatures, sees only their failings, and says, this one is good for nothing, has been good for nothing for years, and it's time to give up. And that attitude doesn't sound at all like God to me. Sounds like the devil. And the gardener rejects this line of reason. He replies not just with the professional expertise of one whose whole life is centered on cultivating fruit trees. He replies with the passion of a lover who not only knows, but deeply cares about the one that he knows. And the gardener knows this fig tree intimately. He's the one who cares for it every day, who loves it and wants to see it thrive. His concern isn't so much with the maximum amount of fruit that this space of land can produce. The gardener cares specifically about this tree. He wants this tree to bear good fruit, even if that means waiting, even if that means another painful year of patiently waiting to see what happens. And I think this is a lovely picture of God, the patient gardener. What does it have to do with repentance? Here, I think we can look to a questionnaire as a The passage from Isaiah that Jeremy read for us a few moments ago involves another call for repentance. It's another text in which God confronts God's people saying, we need to talk. Now, let me just briefly remind you of the context. After all, the stories in the Bible all happen in particular places and times particular people, and it can be very difficult to keep track of all the complicated timelines of those events. Here, the prophet is a Jewish exile in Babylon, speaking to fellow exiles about their life in strange lands. This community had been taken against their will from their home in Jerusalem after Babylonian troops had decimated their city and dragged them away. But now, after being in Babylon for a few decades, they're actually doing quite well. A little too well, the prophet thinks. You see, 50 or 60 years earlier, when they were still in Jerusalem, facing the threat of exile, another prophet, Jeremiah, had counseled those facing exile to do their best to survive in Babylon, to remain faithful to God and their traditions as best they could in a strange place thousand miles from Jerusalem, where their homes and their temples lay in utter ruin. He told them, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, multiply yourselves and do not decrease, and seek the welfare of the city where you are in exile, and pray on its behalf. And the exiles had done this, mostly. But as the prophet in this passage thinks, they have succeeded so well in Babylon. They have assimilated so thoroughly and comfortably that they are in danger of losing their identity, of losing their God-given purpose for this time in exile. They wanted to get ahead in the Babylonian Empire, 
So they hustled, they worked extra hours, invested wisely, and then hustled some more. That's what you have to do when you're economically disadvantaged. You have to get ahead of the game. They made all the right, responsible decisions to make a comfortable life for themselves and their children. And for many of them, this was working. They were willing to participate, though, in the greed, the anxiety, and the systemic, but largely hidden forms of violence of the empire that helped them get ahead. Does it sound familiar? In doing all of this, the prophet warns, they lost sight of their distinctive identity as God's chosen people. They've been distracted from their mission to embody God's holy community to the wider world, to seek Babylon's welfare, not as another group of conventionally successful Babylonians, but as God's people, thoroughly Jewish, called and set apart for God's purpose. You see, the prophet thinks that amidst the struggle to succeed, they had missed order their priorities. Spent their time on the wrong place. Spent their energy on the wrong place. As the prophet put it, you spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy. In response, the prophet calls them to repent, to seek the truly worthwhile things in life, which come not from their hustle to get ahead, but from God's grace that falls like pouring rain. He says, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters and drink. Everyone who has no money, come buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. What's interesting about this call to repentance is that in response to their unfaithfulness, God does not threaten to cut them off or try to make them feel guilty about what they've done. Here, God points back to God's covenant with David, the promise God made to be with his people always. And here, God renews that promise, even in the light of their unfaithfulness. The prophet invites them to a deeper relationship with God, one based on God's promise to stay with him and with you. And this call, a call to repentance, is a call to reorder their priorities, to re-envision or reimagine who they are and what their actions mean. This call is not a call to wallow in our guilt or our shame. Repentance is not to dwell in memories of our past failures, even if there are many, or our current sense of unworthiness, even if that sense of Repentance is instead about rediscovering the goodness that lies deep within each of us, that was placed there by God who made us in God's image. Repentance is about discovering our deep abiding worthiness. It's a call to return to a healthier, more life-giving relationship with God, the source of our existence and the one whose call gives our lives meaning and purpose. And in turn, a call to a healthier relationship with those around us, with the world we inhabit, and with ourselves. This call to repentance is a call to bear 
truth. And this, I think, helps us understand finally what Jesus' parable has to do with the call to repentance. Jesus' message is not repent or God will punish you. You see, each and every one of us is already headed towards death. Each of us is barreling headfirst through space and time to whatever moment that is when our time on earth is finally critical. And if we don't repent in the sense of waiting to God's call and attend to our priorities, if we don't seek to recover this original relationship with God, if instead we remain distracted, focused on things that don't ultimately matter, then when our day comes and we suddenly find ourselves with no time left, then we will perish. Then our lives will have been like smoke that vanish dissipating in the wind. You see, fig trees were made to produce figs. That's what's distinctive about them. It's what makes them different from an apple tree or an oak tree or a ponderosa pine. And Christians were baptized into Christ and sealed with the Holy Spirit to bear Christian fruit. And that fruit, the new kinds of social relations and attitudes and priorities and projects, this fruit that Jesus called us to is what's distinctive about those of us who call ourselves Christians. So I encourage you to take some time this week, this month, Maybe even begin in the moment of silence that follows the sermon. And think about the things you spend your time and energy on. What do you read? What do you listen to? What do you watch on your screen? How do you spend your money, your talents, all the gifts God has given you? How are you spending each of these days as you approach that final? Are these things, are these uses of your time bearing fruit? And whatever Lent might mean to you, however you might feel called to repent, to think about your priorities and the use of your time, remember, God is not in the business of condemning. God is not an angry landowner, Jesus describes. God, like a good orchard keeper, is tending to each one of us, even right now. Laying down compost, pruning dead twigs, and being there with us every step along the way. What kind of fruit 